Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, delivered via podcast. As our pronouncer told us, this program is supported by listeners. I want to thank two at this moment, Dennis Hostetter of Santa Cruz, California. And Joe Carson of Knoxville, Tennessee. Hard by the Smoky Mountains in Appalachia there. Wherever you are, however you found this program, I appreciate that you're listening. And if you're able to support it, just go to my website at peterbcollins.com and click on that button that says you can help. We have voluntary subscriptions starting as low as $5 a month. Our music today is from a British guy named Paul Oakenford, and I'm only disappointed that he sold the rights to this song for a shampoo commercial. On this program today, two of my favorite internet-based journalists, Brad Friedman, will join us in the next segment. He's done incredible reporting work on what we're calling Landrogate. Now, Mary Landro is one of my least favorite members of the United States Senate. Uh, but this nut job, wingnut, as Brad likes to call him, named O'Keefe, uh, who is supported by a uh, conservative blogger and apparently on the payroll of this guy Breitbart, well, we're going to hear more about the cover story they've tried to float about uh, their little adventure in the federal office building in New Orleans and how it relates to the ACORN uh, scandal that was initiated by this guy O'Keefe, and it shows the techniques that he has used, and I hope it will cause people to rethink the, uh, the, the way that the ACORN group was libeled, slandered, and uh, really just unfairly attacked, and then Congress loaded on in a way that's unconscionable. So we'll talk with Brad about that. And one of my other favorite Internet-based journalists is Jason Leopold. He's deputy managing editor at truthout.org, and he has done an equally excellent job on the issues related to, finally, the release of the report from the Office of Professional Responsibility. And it's another injustice coming from the Department of Justice. We thought things might change under Obama, um, but I can't say that they have. Jason, welcome back to our program. Thanks, Peter. Good to be with you. And I do want people to read your report because there's a lot of great detail here. And, and if you can accept a compliment, Jason, you do a great job of using the freedom of the web, where you're not given column 
inch, uh, limits and said, well, you, you know, you got to condense the story to this number of words. Right, yeah. But, but likewise, you don't overwrite. You're not a, a, you know, a verbose guy who goes on and on and on. So I think you did a great job here. Well, thank you. And I read the story from uh, beginning to end, and I hope that my listeners will as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. In fact, I was actually looking at the, you know, the story over the weekend, and I, and I realized that it was, you know, it, was, it is a lengthy piece. And, you know, my fear was is that uh, people would get lost uh, reading it. But I, I think that, you know, providing this detail and this background, particularly to those who may not have been following it closely, but obviously know the name John Yu, uh, who is the, uh, you know, the, the, the author of one of the torture memos, uh, and certainly Jay Bybee, at least uh, provide that uh, important bit of background uh, so they know how this transpired. Because... You know, Peter, this is an investigation that was conducted by the uh, Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility for five years. Or I should uh, excuse me, four years. It was uh, uh, more than uh, four years that this, uh, this, this probe uh, uh, went on for. And, uh, the, you know, they wrapped it up in December of 2008. Uh, and from what we know, at least from a, uh, a report published by Newsweek, late Friday night, uh, so you can certainly be sure that this was a, uh, a leak that was uh, planned. Uh, that's the way that I look at it, at least. Well, I certainly agree, because <clears throat> this is, uh, it was released uh, the last Friday of January. This came after the State of the Union message and all the coverage of that, and then Obama's dramatic appearance before the Republican congressional retreat, which dominated the news cycle uh, Friday and into the weekend. And uh, I don't think it was accidental that this was the moment uh, that uh, the whitewash was uh, released to the uh, the public. Right. right. I, I don't think so either. And, and given the, you know, the uh, the fact that it was written by uh, Mike Michael Isikoff over at Newsweek, who uh, you know is a good reporter, but also uh, is the recipient of uh, you know of, of information that uh, you know that is leaked and uh, you know that uh, to put out there to you know for one reason or another. You know, I, th- I think it's important to keep that in mind. But well, and, and uh, let me just comment because, as you know, I uh, have done a, an inter- interesting series of podcasts with Sibel Edmonds, right? And uh, she's highly critical of Michael Isakoff because I she know, met yeah. with him, she gave him information. He not only ignored that information, but he published the denials of the Justice Department about Sibel's allegations uh, at face value. Yeah, uh, I think that that pretty much sort of. Uh, sums up, you know, the type of um, reporting to a large degree that he does. I think that you can certainly look back and see that, you know, when, he'll, when, when he gets these denials or official statements, it's just almost published verbatim uh, without any consideration for, you know, the other side. It's almost a, a, a way to sort of kill the story, if you will. Well, and as we know how these things work, uh, when you are trusted by sources at the Justice Department as somebody who can be reliable to hold back on information, then when something like this comes out, well, they pick him instead of Jason Leopold or somebody from the Chicago Tribune, and they say, well, let's give this to Isikoff, and, uh, you know, that way he's going to uh, uh, be happy with us in the future. Exactly, and I think that, you know, this is just uh, a perfect example all right, so let, let's start with the, the thumbnail here, and that is that John Yu and Jay Bybee 
worked in another alphabet soup office at the Justice Department, OLC, right. that's Office of Legal Counsel. And as we know, they were asked to uh, supply legal arguments in the form of memo that would permit the Bush-Cheney administration to uh, expand the range of uh, allowable uh, interrogation tactics. And you and I, Jason, believe that those clearly and intentionally crossed over into what can only be called torture. Right, Eric absolutely. Hol- Eric Holder, at least as he was being confirmed a year ago, uh, acknowledged, at least uh, in the explicit instance of waterboarding, that waterboarding is torture. Waterboarding was one of the tactics, the techniques that was uh, 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 advocated or, or permitted by these memos and then implemented uh, by the uh, Defense Department and by the CIA. Right. So the origin of the torture policies uh, really is Don Rumsfeld. And in some cases, we know that uh, these techniques were applied before the memos were actually written. Uh, oh, and I think that it, by the way, um, at least one important element from the uh, Newsweek story actually points that out that um, the memo was sort of written after the fact. And and that in government circles is called CYA, or cover your ass. Right. (laughs) I think that it's it's clear that there was a a retroactive, uh, uh, I don't even know if you want to call it immunity, but it was uh, written uh, after, you know, the, uh, what they called enhanced interrogation uh, techniques were... administered to detainees, and, and that included waterboarding. But uh, beyond that, much, you know, much more brutal techniques like sleep deprivation, you know, slamming detainees into walls, putting, putting them into coffin-like boxes, and, and sleep deprivation, you know, let's, let, let's, let me just say that we're talking about keeping uh, people up or, or, or these prisoners up for, you know, more than a week at a time. And, uh, and Jason, so, our, our most recent podcast that just precedes this one is an interview with Scott Horton of Harper's Magazine oh, yeah. about the three homicides that occurred on June 9th of 2006. That groundbreaking report. Outside of the main compound at Guantanamo in a place that is only known as a black site dubbed uh, Camp No, N-O. Right. And that's because uh, if anybody asks if it exists, you're supposed to say no. Uh, and uh, the, we don't have all the facts. We have a lot of information from uh, guards who were on duty that night. I encourage people to listen to the Horton interview. His detailed article will be in the March issue of Harper's Magazine. It's online now at harpers.org. Right. And uh, in it, what we have are homicides that are uh, likely the product of the torture policies. And so uh, this this is not just a matter of, of situations where... Uh, people were, uh, you know, manipulated or physically abused, but did not lose their lives. We know that uh, not only these three, but also some who were uh, interrogated at Bagram and other spots in Afghanistan, uh, died as a result of these uh, so-called enhanced interrogations. Right. So this becomes more critical, in my view, because we now have substantive proof that uh, these policies did cause people to die at the hands of American interrogators. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think that we have, Peter, we have beyond proof. We have, uh, you know, these are war crimes. Let's just face it. You know, this is documented, documentary evidence 
of war crimes. And, you know, if I could just talk about the OPR report, what, what stands out is the fact that under the Bush administration, you know, let, let, let's, let's start talking about this in, in a political sense. During the Bush administration, this investigation was, um, was, was launched by the Office of Professional Responsibility into this, these memos that John Yu wrote, that Jay Bybee uh, signed. Jay Bybee is now a, uh, an appeals court judge on the, on the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, those memos that allowed the CIA to, uh, you know, use these enhanced interrogation techniques, you know, is, is, is being sort of the um, uh, pointed to as, as what sort of led to many of the, uh, uh, the deaths of detainees in, in um, you know, Guantanamo, uh, Bagram, and, and other places. And, you know, like I said, for more than four years, this investigation was conducted. It was launched um, as a result of um, uh, a, a tense debate that uh, Jack Goldsmith, who succeeded Jay Bybee at the Office of Legal Counsel, right. uh, had uh, gotten into with uh, uh, Alberto Gonzalez uh, uh, at the time. I believe he was the uh, still uh, White House counsel. Uh, and, um, you know, basically this was, he, he withdrew these torture memos. He said that uh, he found them to be legally flawed, uh, sloppily written. Uh, he, you know, he withdrew it. And as a result of his complaints and, and his concerns, uh, it was, um, this investigation was launched. Uh, by the way, I, again, I'm getting into some, you know, real deep detail here. It was actually launched, um, because John Yu failed to cite a key legal uh, case, mm-hmm. uh, the Supreme Court... The Youngstown uh, decision. Exactly, the Youngstown decision. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I know that to be the case because in another report released last year by inspectors general of five different agencies, uh, it talked about the, uh, you know, the surveillance program that... Uh, the warrantless wiretap program that uh, you know that that also uh, uh, operated under Bush and and John, you played a key part in in terms of writing these uh, memos. And it took him to task for actually failing to cite Youngstown. Uh, you know when when he gave Bush or when he said you have the right to uh, basically do whatever you please because you're president of the United States, you're king. Uh, and it said that um, you know the young the failure to cite Youngstown. Uh, was sort of uh, instrumental in the uh, investigation that the Office of Professional Responsibility conducted uh, into these torture memos. So they conducted this investigation four and a half years. They, uh, you know, they, they, they had thousands upon thousands of emails. Uh, they looked at how the, you know, the torture memos were written. They wrapped up their investigation in, uh, let's see, it was December of 2008. Mm-hmm. They finished it. And this okay. was this was an acting interim uh, director of this office named Stephen Bradbury, who himself has some exposure on these issues. Absolutely. He was, he reinstated many of the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, many of the uh, memos that his predecessor, Jack Goldsmith, has had withdrawn. Right. And, and by the way, he, re- he ended up after withdrawing these memos, resigning. Uh, he now is a professor over at Harvard. He's also the author of the book, uh, 
the terror presidency. Mm-hmm. That's Goldsmith, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, so yes, Steve Bradbury was, uh, was, was part of this investigation. Uh, he uh, also had the opportunity to, you know, review the, the report. And as I said, it was wrapped up in December of 2008. The Bush administration was getting ready to leave office. The report was handed in. Uh, then Attorney General uh, Michael Mukasey, his deputy, Mark Phillip, uh, had um, protested the findings, the conclusions, and demanded that John Yu and Stephen Bradbury and Jay Bybee be given the opportunity to respond. Now, I should say that that's not unusual. Um, if, you, if anyone looks at the guidelines posted on the uh, Justice Department website, and I've linked to them those guidelines in my report, you know, you'll see that uh, uh, you know, when, when quote-unquote, there's adverse findings uh, uh, that, that perhaps uh, professional standards were, were violated, you know, the, the, the subject of the investigation is given the opportunity to respond. Well, what happened was, Peter, is that uh, after the report was, was handed in, these uh, John Yu, Jay Bybee, Stephen Bradbury had the opportunity to respond. Obama's Justice Department, uh, under Eric Holder, uh, you know, started to uh, conduct the, the, the review and make revisions to this report. And based on these, uh, you know, based on these findings. And uh, let me just go back for a second. The report itself conducted, or, or the investigation and the subsequent report, conducted during the Bush years, mm-hmm. uh, found that John Yu and Jay Bybee, at least we're, we're, we're going to go off the Newsweek report, they, it found that they violated professional standards, that they, they provided more or less poor legal advice mm-hmm. to the White House. It recommended, the report recommended, a referral to state bar associations where... Uh, a, a review there could have led to uh, the revocation of their law licenses. And in the case of Jay Bybee, could have really, you know, been the, uh, the next step to uh, impeachment proceedings. So, again, the Bush Justice Department at the time, and, and, and you know, OPR, Office of Professional Responsibility, is an independent watchdog, they found that they violated professional standards. Well, you know, you, you, the Obama Justice Department has spent the past year with this report in its hands. Uh, it, had, it, it started making the revisions. Uh, I followed it very closely for the entire year, and, and going even you know, further back uh, several, several years while it was, the investigation was taking place as well. And, it, you know, they, they started watering down some of the conclusions. They started to, you know, make revisions based on what... Uh, uh, the responses were, and it turns out that uh, a career prosecutor again this is this is a, a standard procedure uh, was given the opportunity to do a final review, and that person is uh, david margolis and he 's a when i say career prosecutor you know he 's been with the Justice Department for more than thirty years, and uh, he changed. The, uh, the findings uh, or the recommendation mm-hmm. uh, from a referral to State Bar. He changed the recommendation saying that they uh, violated professional standards to, to poor judgment. Poor judgment. Whoops. I need Just... to say that again. Poor judgment. <laughs> John Yu 
and Jay Bybee. Um, but let's face it, it's really John Yu. Jay Bybee signed his name to it, but John Yu wrote this memo. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a memo that really um, changed everything in terms of uh, presidential power. Uh, I mean, he, he, he literally, with his legal memos, handed George Bush, you know, uh, more power than uh, anyone had, could have ever imagined. And, and what's important to note here is that much of this was constructed outside of legal precedent, outside of substantive uh, legal argument. It was essentially just uh, concocted. And, uh, you know, that's why Goldsmith referred to it as, as sloppy, uh, sloppily written <clears throat> and poorly reasoned. But, you know, this is not consistent with the standards of uh, legal uh, precedent and, and legal uh, uh, advisories that are often issued by the Justice Department or, or, you know, written by lawyers in briefs before a court to argue a specific case. They're very detailed, and it's always based on uh, foundations of precedent, of previous rulings, previous interpretations of specific law. And John Yu went way around that and just basically cobbled together a series of arguments, as you've previously reported. Some of it was lifted from a court decision regarding health care insurance. Exactly. About, that's you important know, to keep in mind. And in fact, from what I understand, the report uh, itself, the, uh, the OPR report, the original draft, has really taken John Yu to task also for misapplying a, uh, a medical benefit statute, a health care benefit statute, uh, to narrowly define torture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, we don't have the report yet. You know, that's, that, let, let's just you know, also mention that. But the yeah. report's not out yet. Eric Holder said last November, supposed to be out at the end of the month. I found out that uh, David Margolis, the uh, career prosecutor is reviewing this. Uh, he was out sick, supposedly, for the month of December with pneumonia, hospitalized, and uh, that, that caused some sort of delay. But uh, there's also speculation that uh, you know, Obama has been trying to get a health care bill passed, and, and perhaps that played a part in it as well. But you know, the report is not out. But again, you know, he, he used a medical benefit statute, as you just said. You know, he cobbled together these you know, the, the various things to define torture, um, to, de- to define what the definition of torture is. And, uh, you know, the report said, I mean, that, that the question, Peter, is what happened? Um, and how do you go from violating professional standards to finding that somebody just used poor judgment? Yeah. You know, and, and I've actually read these memos, Jason. Uh, David Cole, the Georgetown law professor, published them in a book uh, last summer. And it's chilling to read them because, you know, these are suits in an office, uh, uh, essentially author- authorizing the most barbaric, uh, uh, inhuman tactics that one person could use on another. And they wrap it all in a series of rationalizations and uh, assertions of presidential power. Um, and you now has a book out about it, and he's been doing public appearances. Oh, yeah, he, he's he, out there, you know, on a, on a book tour while, you know, promoting this while the, the Justice Department continues to delay this report. Yeah. I mean, they're essentially, the way that I look at it, you know, they're helping his book sales along. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and and they are, uh, you know, I would not uh, deny Jay Bybee or John Yu due process that they have denied to those who are in our custody. Uh, I believe that they are entitled to process and to the benefit of, uh, you know, the uh, assumption of innocence. But the information is quite compelling, and at least an investigation is called for. Right. And so it is It is stunning that once again the Obama administration is covering up in a way that I think approaches criminality uh, the wrongdoing of those who preceded them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, Peter, this is, um, you know, th- this was sort of, this investigation uh, was, was really one of the last hopes that people had, you know, people who have been, uh, I, I guess you could call them, you know, activists or, or those who actually care about the rule of law, uh, hoped that uh, w- would really hold uh, people responsible for, uh, you know, for, for what was done uh, during the Bush administration after 9-11, uh, you know, uh, in the name of, uh, uh, of war on terror. Uh, and that the Obama Justice Department and let me, you know, let's face it, you know, yes, a career prosecutor was looking at this, but the bottom line is that Eric Holder's the attorney general. He's got to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. He can reject it, by the way. He can absolutely reject these conclusions and findings and say, you know what? These guys violated professional standards. I'm not accepting your, you know, your recommendations. Career prosecutor David Margolis. Uh, and by the way, let me just also add that if you recall, when, when Eric Holder announced that there would be this uh, uh, independent investigation into, uh, uh, you know, in, in, into uh, the torture of certain detainees last year, after the release of the Inspector General's report yes. from the CIA, mm-hmm. well, he actually, there were many reports that actually said that what, what prompted his decision was not, only the, it was not only the report by the CIA Inspector General, but was actually the OPR report. So uh, I guess it was the original draft. I don't know for sure. So again, you know, he ultimately announced this very narrow uh, uh, probe. Well, and he put, a, uh, he put a prosecutor in charge of it who has been uh, right. taking the slow boat to justice on an investigation he was assigned into the CIA's destruction of videotapes of waterboarding. Right. And right. so this is all too cozy for me because, uh, you know, we need some truly independent uh, eyes to review these matters, uh, not people. And, and I don't know Margolis, and I, I do not intend to impugn his integrity. But uh, the result is what I criticize, and I cannot accept it given the uh, volume of information that's available to the public. Right. No, and, and let's face it, you know, that is, again... <clears throat> To me, it's, it, it appears, and I think that it's safe to say at this point, that the Obama administration and the Obama Justice Department has gone above and beyond, has bent over backwards to excuse and sweep under the rug the, the evidence of war crimes, uh, the fact that uh, laws have been, you know, have, have been broken uh, in other areas, 
and simply just do not want this to be an issue. And, and, and Jason, I'll just add to that, because uh, in my conversation with Scott Horton, he describes his uh, interaction with other Justice Department officials who were investigating the deaths at Guantanamo. And this goes beyond uh, simply excusing or uh, failing to fully investigate. It appears that th- there's more of an active effort to cover up. Right. And, and I that... think that's absolutely true. There's definitely an effort to cover up. And, and you know, I, I need to be uh, go a little bit further here. I think that what the Obama administration um, is doing, at least from what we can tell what, what has transpired over the past year, to me at least, would seem worse than what the Bush administration did. Because here you have, you know, uh, they're presented with the evidence, and, and they're forced to take action, make a decision. And instead, they're actually, you know, going above and beyond to uh, not make those decisions that, they, that even those who have conducted investigations like H. Marshall Jarrett, who at the time was the head of Office of Professional Responsibility, had recommended. Mm-hmm. You know, during the Bush administration, let's face it, we didn't have, you know, anyone conducting these types of investigations, at least not on the level that's, you know, that's been done now. And here you have the Obama administration, you know, saying that, uh, hey, the Justice Department is independent, and, and perhaps they are. But I think that politics are certainly a play here, and I think that people, you know, have seen, you know, uh, too much evidence of the Justice Department being politicized that they will question that this time around. I, I think that this does not help to restore uh, trust yeah. uh, in the Justice Department that was, uh, you know, th- that the Bush administration, uh, you know, under Alberto Gonzalez and even under Ashcroft violated that trust. Well, and, and Jason, I cannot excuse this as political expediency. Obama, you know, first offered this phrase, he wants to look forward, not backward, but nobody's above the law. And uh, he has presented this as if it was a choice of the health care debate, which has gone nowhere, uh, or justice under our Constitution. And it's not optional. It's not uh, a matter of uh, a political decision that it's not convenient, that it's not propitious for some reason to pursue this. And so it suggests uh, dark, dark uh, possibilities that uh, President Obama and his Justice Department have other reasons, other motivations to keep these matters under wraps. Yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear what happens. Well, you know, uh, Dick Cheney comes out of his, uh, you know, his dungeon and uh, gets on to MSNBC or, or uh, Mike Allen from Politico gives him a uh, you know, an open mic to let him say whatever he wants. Republicans start to trash, you know, the Obama Justice Department. Uh, all this political pressure starts to uh, uh, come down on, on him, his administration. He can't get his domestic uh, policies uh, uh, passed. Does that sound conspiratorial? Perhaps. Is it, is it likely from what we know? Absolutely. I think that it, it absolutely plays a part in it. Let's not forget, you know, Obama said last year, I'm going to release these, these photographs that showed abuse uh, and torture of prisoners in prisons in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm going to do that because a, a court had ordered uh, uh, us to. 
And what happened? Well, you know, you had Dick Cheney, you had Liz Cheney, you had all these various, you know, Republicans coming out accusing the Obama of uh, uh, Obama administration and Obama himself of uh, uh, of uh, you know catering to uh, uh, to terrorists and and uh, you know uh, capitulating to Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, these, these insane remarks, and what happened? Obama, you know, decided against it, eventually fought it to the Supreme Court, worked with Congress in secret to change the uh, Freedom of Information Act, uh, and uh, lo and behold, he signed a law that uh, keeps these uh, photographs under wraps. So there's the evidence right there. There you go. You know, they claim that, uh, you know, it would fan the flames of... Uh, of uh, uh, outrage toward the toward the uh, the U.S. and soldiers on the ground would be at risk, and you had you had people that said, and even courts that said, no, it won't. Uh, you know, this is this is truly stunning, Peter. And I think that once we do see this report come out, when it's finally released, um, it's, it's supposedly going through a declassification review right now. I think that people are just going to, you know. Going to truly be outraged if they aren't already. Well, I hope so. We've had too much passivity, and I I hope that people do have that appropriate response. And I think, by the way, let's let's also you know add to this that Congress has a responsibility to hold hearings into this matter. The Senate and House Judiciary Committees, because this is under their purview. This is it, it, it's it's incumbent upon them to truly you know demand answers right right away. Uh, to find out what happened. Um, we may not see that original draft. You know, we're, we're probably going to get, by the way, a report that's heavily redacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it will no doubt provide us with new information on how these memos were drafted. Um, but again, you know, I just have to emphasize, it went from saying, from finding that they violated professional standards to actually stating that uh, instead of, uh, of, uh, of keeping that in place, let's just find that they used poor judgment. Poor judgment is what you do when you get into your car after drinking two beers. No, no, no. You poor know? judgment is mismatched socks or a tie, yeah, a tie that clashes with your shirt. <laughs> right. Or it's, I mean, poor judgment, you know, that, that, that seems so benign. Yeah. Jason, I want to mention that uh, a group of constitutional activists uh, are yeah. not taking this lying down. If people want to get active, go to the website disbartorturelawyers.com. And uh, this is an extension of velvetrevolution.us. And uh, Kevin Zeese is spearheading this effort. And they're calling for protests, uh, in particular here in San Francisco at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on Thursday, February 4th. So I uh, just want yeah, people to be add, aware way, of that. They also did file with state bar associations, you know, complaints, uh, you know, demanding for, you know, a review. Uh, I believe that's, that's, that's how they put it. But uh, more or less what the, you know, what the OPR uh, report had originally recommended. So, you know, they're still under scrutiny uh, by BNU. Uh, you know, they're... they're uh, the likelihood is that they, you know, they will conduct a review. I think what's important to keep in mind, uh, unfortunately, is that the statute of limitations for uh, something like this in Philadelphia, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, 
has expired. It's only five years. So John Yu... Um, so he could move to Philadelphia and enjoy immunity? Well, that's where he is. I'm sorry, that's where he's registered, or that's where his, uh, he's got his law license from. Really? He from teaches at Berkeley. I guess he doesn't have to practice to yeah, teach here. Yeah, he is. Well, he teaches at Berkeley, but his, he received his, uh, uh, you know, passed the bar in the state of, uh, state of Pennsylvania. State uh. Philadelphia. Uh, state of Pennsylvania. And, uh, and by the way, he's also a columnist, which is, you know, people don't realize this, for, you know, for the Philly Inquirer. Um, you know, he, he publishes columns there regularly. So the statute of limitations there had already expired. So, you know, it, it was on, it, it, this only sort of um, goes back to, you know, the question of why has this report been delayed for as long as it has? Why have they been, were they given ample opportunity to respond uh, as much as they have responded, at least according to what we know? Um, how do you... At, say that somebody you know used poor judgment without citing one of the one, one of the most famous Supreme Court cases you know uh, in U.S. history. Well, because it was inconvenient and it would have wouldn't have Absolutely. supported his assertions. Yes, you know, and 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 that seems clear, but yet here you have you know more evidence of sweeping this under the rug, and um, it's. Uh, it, it, it's something that I think that Obama is going to suffer from greatly, uh, and, and I mean from his, you know, from his base. People, you know, I looked at some of the comments attached to this story, and and it's it's truly sad. Uh, people have absolutely no faith in, you know, in their government and in, in their justice department, and uh, I, I wouldn't say that they're, you know, they're cynical. They just, you know, the, it, we've just seen for the past decade almost. You know what has, um, you know what, what has taken place under Bush for eight years, and and Obama, and I think that uh, now Obama, and, and it's uh, uh, we're seeing more of the same, and and I, I think to a large degree worse. Well, I fully agree with you, Jason, and I did read some of the comments there, and I encourage people to go to truthout.org and uh, read the article, and then some of the responses that readers posted. Jason, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about one thing I found interesting in your article. And uh, this is based on the Newsweek story and the fact, uh, I just want to underscore, that we have not seen the the report itself yet. But uh, this basically uh, describes David Addington, who was Dick Cheney's counsel in the vice president's office. And when Scooter Libby took the hit to protect Karl Rove, uh, he moved up to uh, uh, Cheney's chief of staff. He's right. a combative guy. Uh, he was behind the signing statements that Bush used to try to subvert uh, the role of Congress in legislation. Uh, he was a very activist and uh, uh, in-your-face kind of guy, uh, working as Cheney's point man to propel the expansion of presidential power. And in it, in in your article, you're noting here that there was a, a back and forth. Michael Chertoff who uh, was heading the criminal division at the Justice Department, declined to approve a CIA request uh, for essentially immunity for any of its officers who tortured people. And at that point, you went to the White House, met with Addington and Alberto Gonzalez, and came back and inserted a new section into the memo about uh, essentially expansive views of presidential power in wartime. Exactly. And that's where he failed to cite Youngstown, by the way. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and because had he done that, 
uh, he would have, he, you know, we, we would have seen that the Supreme Court uh, actually said, no, you, you can't do that. Uh, uh, you know, I'm n- not doing the opinion itself or the ruling itself justice, but yeah, that's, you know, that's key. Uh, and, and so that makes Addington a potential co-conspirator here. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a connection here, by the way, I have to say, to the Jose Padilla lawsuit, Jose mm-hmm. Padilla being the um, American, right? The American who was uh, uh, accused of uh, uh, trying to set off a dirty bomb, uh, held in a military brig uh, as an enemy combatant, uh, and he's suing John Yu mm-hmm. uh, for uh, you know for torture, or or because uh, he said he suffered torture as, as a direct result of John Yu's memos, and. Um, you know, one of the things the Justice Department had uh, had defended John Yu uh, until John Yu decided to get his own attorney, and and one of the uh, reasons for that was that the, or at least it's been speculated by legal scholars, is that uh, John Yu may call David Addington as a witness if this ever gets to trial, and the Justice Department did not want to, you know, defend. Uh, uh, you know, John Yu in, in, in basically, you know, being able to call these various people from the Bush administration uh, to testify. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Addington was specifically named uh, as one of those people. So, uh, you know, and, and by the way, this Padilla lawsuit is continuing, and the Justice Department, I, I should mention, about a month ago, in one of its uh, filings, uh, and, and again, here's another example, Peter, if I can just mention this, is that, you know, as I said, last year the, the Justice Department withdrew from representing John Yu in, in this case. But late, late last year, they submitted a friend-of-the-court brief uh, in arguing why this lawsuit should be dismissed. Hmm. You know, this is, again, just another example of what is going on with the Obama Justice Department. I mean, they didn't need to do that. Okay, they... they this is a friend of the court brief. They, they went and basically argued this case should be dismissed. One of the reasons, they said, is because we have a watchdog, uh, the Office of Professional Responsibility, you know, that conducted an investigation and is capable of administering punishment you know, for bad lawyering. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we know that that's not going to happen now. Uh, however, it does look like the... Uh, if the report comes out in, in the um, condition that has been you know, that I reported and that uh, Newsweek reported, uh, it looks like the, the case will be dismissed. But again, you know, um, this was just one of those instances where, you know, Jose Padilla makes some, you know, his attorneys make some really good arguments uh, in, in, in terms of saying how John Yu just cooked up this theory, you know, this legal theory. Uh, and, uh, you know, which led to, you know, the, the torture of, uh, of an American, no less. Uh, and, uh, well, he's a, he's a cut-and-paste legal scholar. Yeah that's, yeah, that's the best way I can put it. Jason, thank you for your excellent reporting. Great commentary here today. And if you'd like to link to this uh, podcast at truthout.org, feel free to do that. Thank you, Peter. Great to talk with you. You too. The Peter B. Collins Show is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. News coming soon about how you can join the Organic Wine Club here at the Peter B. Collins Show. Click on the link on my homepage right now at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer 
to the fine world of organic wines. As I mentioned at the top, Mary Landro is one of my least favorite members of the United States Senate. She's the senator from oil and gas and uh, also Louisiana. And that's on a good day. And so why, oh why, did James O'Keefe decide that Mary Landro was the legislator to go after over what he viewed as sellouts in the health care reform arguments in the Senate. I mean, uh, Ben Nelson in Nebraska had a sweetheart deal, and Harry Reid of uh, Nevada has a sweetheart deal, and Joey Lieberman was trying to cut his sweetheart deal. But the answer is that Landro is up for re-election this year, and so he uh, and his cronies went into her office, and uh, they claim now that they were simply trying to make the point that maybe her phone system was broken when constituents were trying to call to protest her uh, wheeling and dealing, what they called the Louisiana Purchase, over uh, her goodies in the health care package in the Senate. We turn to citizen journalist Brad Friedman, who's doing a great job on this story, among others, at bradblog.com. Brad, always good to have you on the program. Always good to be back, sir, particularly when we get to talk about these uh, right-wing, phony, uh, acorn liars. Well, and uh, I want to offer you a compliment, and it's similar to what I said to Jason Leopold, who appeared in the uh, preceding segment, and that is you use the web really well, and you write stories that are as long as they need to be, not stories to fit a news hole or, you know, a given a word count that an editor might give you. And I have to say, uh, in an email uh, last night, I complimented you, but some of your uh, turn of the phrase is really stellar. And so as we discuss this story, I don't want it to be a substitute. I want everyone who's listening to this to go to bradblog.com and read it for yourself because it's, it's not only great reportage, but uh, I think it's extremely well written, and I, I just give you high marks for it, Brad. You're very kind. I'll take it. And also they should note that it is your sixth birthday at uh, bradblog.com, and there are ways that people can uh, celebrate that. Read it on the homepage uh, when you get there. So this guy, O'Keefe, came to attention last year, last summer, when he released uh, these highly edited videotapes that showed him and a young lady whose butt was hanging out uh, going into Acorn offices at different locations around the country. And they've never released the full videotapes. Independent analysis has shown that the tapes were doctored, that uh, voiceovers were used to... Uh, advance a certain narrative that O'Keefe had in mind that was highly uh, critical or, or embarrassing to Acorn as uh, he and this girl posed as a pimp and a hoe and were getting advice on how they could uh, file their taxes and uh, avoid getting caught. And some of these people uh, were sucked into it. Others were suspicious and called the cops. But the net effect was that uh, Congress uh, rolled over because a few Republicans made charges about this, and uh, they passed a remarkable bill with incredible Democratic support uh, that was highly critical of ACORN and attempted to cut off their federal funding. That has since been stymied by a federal judge, 
but the uh, onus remains on Acorn, which has had to scale back its operations in many cities. So fast forward to this recent event in New Orleans, and let me ask you to take over the narrative. Uh, This James O'Keefe and three of his buddies, uh, all in their early to mid-20s, showed up at Mary Landro's office. Yeah, and actually before I uh, hit what happened down there in, in Louisiana and that particular scam, let me, let me just hit a few points in your, uh, in your summary there, okay. which are actually uh, somewhat misleading in that they're based on the, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom about this uh, case and about the ACORN case, but a lot of it is just out-and-out out incorrect or misleading. For a start, uh, James O'Keefe did not release those videotapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a GOP operative scam artist propagandist by the name of Andrew Breitbart, uh, who used to uh, work for Matt Drudge, he released those tapes. And the reason why his releasing those tapes, or at least some of them, is important will probably be clear in a minute or two. So I just want to make sure that, that folks know it was Breitbart who released O'Keefe's tape. Secondly, O'Keefe and uh, Hannah Giles, you, you described that they you know, dressed up as a hoe and a pimp and a hoe, mm-hmm. and went into these offices. In fact, <clears throat> she was dressed up as a prostitute. He was dressed as a conservative college student, even represented himself in some of the offices as a potential congressional candidate. The shots that you and I and Fox News and CNBC, uh, CNN and MSNBC and everyone else saw of O'Keefe dressed up as a pimp were phony. They were put in afterwards. O'Keefe never went into those offices dressed as a pimp. Mm-hmm. Those were inserted later on. And, and you know, it, it, a lot of people looked at those and said, God, how stupid this Acorn group must be that they would think that this guy was a pimp. Well, they didn't think that because he never represented himself that way. In fact, uh, they had told the Acorn workers that he had that they were uh, that that she was working for someone else an abusive pimp mm. and that he was there to save her get her out of the house and rescue all of these underage uh, uh children that were supposedly involved in this uh uh phony uh prostitution ring mm-hmm. so I, I mean the entire thing from the jump was a scam and it was never reported that way it was reported quite the opposite two independent reports Later on came out in, uh, over the holidays, back in uh, December or so, uh, one of them from the Congressional Research Service, another from the uh, former Massachusetts Attorney General, Scott Harshbarger. Uh, and uh, Harshbarger writes, quote, No evidence that action, illegal or otherwise, was taken by any ACORN employee on behalf of the videographers. He's talking about O'Keefe and Giles there. Mm-hmm. You know, this was all a whole bunch of nothing. Democrats should be ashamed of themselves for falling for this scam, for passing this bill that uh, defunded ACORN when, in fact, uh, these other uh, government contractors have defrauded the government, admitted defrauding the government to billions of dollars. Many of them are even on trial for doing things like killing our troops in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and yet they continue to receive more funding in a day than ACORN has received in their lifetime. So this entire thing was a setup. The ACORN business was a setup going after that, uh, going after ACORN for having the temerity, as you and I have discussed many times, for having the temerity 
to uh, register millions of low- and middle-income voters who, oh, by the way, tend to vote Democratic yep. and uh, register them legally, by the way. Well, uh, and, and one yep. of the tricks that was used that you have uh, uh, disclosed to us in the past, Brad, is that when you are registering voters and somebody fills out a form that is obviously wrong or fraudulent, Mm -hmm. it is the responsibility of those who are gathering the signatures to turn in that form uh, and report it to the uh, the voter, you know, secretary of state or whoever else is in charge of voter registration in a given jurisdiction. That's right. And so when they properly followed those procedures, and the example that uh, I've heard very often is that somebody signed up Mickey Mouse, well, uh, they turned in the form that had Mickey Mouse on it, and they said, don't, uh, don't file this. This is not true. It's not accurate. And we're, we're doing this as a matter of, of protocol. They not only turned in the forms as they're required to by law and notified officials about it, they also notified officials about those employees who had created those phony registration forms. The reason we even know about a handful of uh, Acorn's 13,000 employees being, uh, you know, taken to task, arrested, whatever it was, for registration fraud is because Acorn themselves told officials about it. So, you know, they were doing their job, and of course the thanks that they have is these uh, jerks like uh, Breitbart and O'Keefe go out there and, you know, say they're some sort of uh, criminal organization uh, for what a handful of employees did and for what it was that they turned in. Uh, We've used the uh, example before of, you know, an employee who works at uh, Walmart stealing off the shelves and uh, using that as evidence that Walmart themselves are some sort of criminal organization. It makes absolutely no sense. But yet, this is what happened, and we need to go back through these facts uh, about the entire uh, anti-ACORN scheme to really set the groundwork for what we're looking at now in Louisiana. We know that that was a scheme, the ACORN business, and that was rather successful. So now when you look at uh, this whatever happened in Mary Landrieu's office with these uh, same players and a few more, uh, and they're trying to get their asses off the hook, keep it in mind that when their successful scheme was full of lies, you can only imagine how they are willing to lie at this point to get themselves off the hook for a federal felony offense for which uh, four of them have now been, uh, have now been charged as of last week. And the one other backstory here that I just want to underscore, and this you know relates to your beat, Brad, of election protection. Uh, I view this as an effort to distract people from election fraud, which is where those involved in the election, those who manage the election, either permitted or participated uh, in uh, throwing elections uh, for specific candidates, uh, and that that issue has been pushed into the background as the Republicans have always focused on their allegations of voter fraud. Right. And that's at the center of the U.S. attorney dismissal of David Iglesias in New Mexico and perhaps in other jurisdictions. And it has yet to be uh, properly investigated so that we can understand the full dimensions of rigged elections and attempts uh, to throw elections uh, through the use of these phony allegations of voter fraud as the real issue was election fraud. That's right. This is the same 
scam played out over and over and over again. It's been played out for years. You've even got this uh, liar, Andy Breitbart, out there uh, tweeting to people. And Andy, by the way, has tweeted me death threats before. Uh, now he's out there, uh, t- t- you know, uh, tweeting that, oh, Brad Friedman and uh, Diebold, 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 you know, on the voting machines. He doesn't give a damn about legitimate elections. He's fighting against a lit- uh, legitimate elections. And this is even after I spent uh, a couple of weeks ago writing article after article for a far right wing newspaper up in uh, 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 upstate New York concerning uh, the Diebold concerns about the election in Massachusetts prior to the election. Uh, spent uh, time writing articles in their paper about how the conservative party's Doug Hoffman appears to have gotten screwed by electronic voting in last November's uh, New York 23 special election. Mm-hmm. I've long made the argument that it's not about right and left, it's about right and wrong, and that I, I will go to bat for a Republican, a conservative, or anybody else who has been screwed by fraudulent elections. You know, on the other hand, you've got Andy Breitbart, who claims to be a journalist, who claims to be uh, providing fairness and balance to the quote-unquote liberal media. That's the same thing that uh, James O'Keefe is pretending that he's doing, when in fact, these guys are nothing but GOP Republican operatives willing to do anything, willing to lie to anybody, and willing to uh, defraud any election they have to in order to put their party over country. And, of course, it's infuriating to those of us who uh, respect true journalism to see a guy like O'Keefe try to claim that he's a journalist and that this was some sort of a, you know, undercover, uh, you know, investigative journalism tactic that he was using. So let's go to the events of uh, Monday, uh, January. That would have been about the 25th. Yeah, uh, so he uh, he's down there with uh, three of his compadres, uh, who have since been declared his co-conspirators, uh, trying to get some sort of access for some reason that is still not clear to the Democratic Senator Mary Landrieu's office, her, her uh, U.S. Senator's office down there in Louisiana. And uh, two of the guys uh, in this scheme dressed up as phone uh, com- phone company employees and actually did succeed in getting access to the uh, to the main phone at the main desk of uh, Mary Landers' office down there. They then asked uh, to get access to the uh, phone closet, wherever that was, mm-hmm. for some reason or another. And at that point, the folks who worked down there in the office began to get suspicious. They called the police, and uh, eventually uh, this entire thing was, was untangled, and the FBI arrested these four guys, one of them, by the way, who was out in a car outside with a listening device while James O'Keefe was on the inside taking uh, either photographs or video with now, his cell phone. Now, when you say listening device, that means he had some gizmos that could be used to tap telephones or that he was listening to what O'Keefe and the other guys were doing as they entered the office. It's not completely clear okay. uh, what the FBI did not do. They did not call it a cell phone. So, in other words, uh, he wasn't talking to O'Keefe on the cell phone. He either had a walkie-talkie or, yeah, potentially some sort of, of listening device. Early, uh, the early reports had called this an attempted bugging. Uh, and later on, some of the newspapers had to backtrack on that, said, well, the FBI did not say they were trying to bug the office. 
but rather, quote-unquote, interfere with her telephones. It's not altogether clear what they mean by interfere, although O'Keefe himself tried, rather pathetically, I should add, to, uh, to clarify that a bit by putting out his own statement, uh, which, of course, Andy Breitbart ran on his uh, biggovernment.com website. But the statement itself that O'Keefe offered to explain this uh, scheme makes no sense. Uh, and I'll, I'll read you just a short portion of it. Uh, O'Keefe says, uh, let's see, when asked about uh, Senator Landrieu's explanation that her uh, constituents were not able to get through to her on the phone last December when the, event, uh, when the uh, vote for health care was going on in the Senate, uh, O'Keefe writes that Senator Landrieu's explanation was that, quote, our lines have been jammed for weeks, unquote. I decided to investigate why a representative of the people would be out of touch with her constituents for weeks because her phones were broken. Well, <laughs> she never said that her phones were broken. Mm -hmm. She said that they had been jammed for weeks and that constituents had been calling in and expressing their opinions uh, either for or against the, uh, the health care bill that they were voting on last December. Nowhere in this explanation does O'Keefe explain why they would think that they would learn something about quote-unquote broken phones or phone, the phone lines being jammed in, when was this, late January, after the complaints were made last December. So that fails for a start. He also, O'Keefe says, that uh, basically, if I could find the exact quote here, uh, yes, we were, we, our intention, he says, was to, quote, ask the staff if their phones were working, unquote. Well, if I wonder if uh, the phones are working in my uh, Congress member's office, I'm not sure it's necessary to have two guys dress up as uh, uh, phone company employees, misrepresent themselves in a federal office, uh, you know, take photographs and videos of the answers, have a guy with a listening device out in the car. I mean, the entire thing, frankly, is complete and utter bullshit. And I can only hope that the federal prosecutors down there don't accept this bullshit uh, at face value, but actually put some work into it and expose whatever the hell was going on. Now, there is some concern about that, because one of these four uh, creeps who, uh, well, there used to be a phrase for this sort of thing back in the uh, Nixon administration. I guess I can use it here, can't I? Yes, you can. Uh, this used to be called rat-fucking. Mm -hmm. And uh, these four rat fuckers were basically, you know, obviously trying to set up Landro for something. Yeah. And the concern is that federal prosecutors at this point may fall for whatever cover story that O'Keefe has offered them. And there's a good likelihood of that, given the fact that one of the four rat fuckers was a guy by the name of uh, Flanagan, James Flanagan, his father is actually, incredibly enough, the acting U.S. attorney in the state of Louisiana. So the very prosecutor's office that is prosecuting these guys is actually led by one of the perps' fathers. Yeah. So uh, it's just unbelievable. And my, my memory is a little weak on this, but there was a Republican activist who was convicted of phone jamming uh, by doing, you know, repeated robocalls to Democrats. Yeah. It was in New Hampshire, and it would have been in... That was 
Alan Raymond in 2002. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and James Tobin, uh, who actually got off on a technicality, but Alan Raymond did serve time. Uh, the Republican Party obviously has a long and storied history and a very recent history of doing whatever they can to, uh, to game elections, uh, to tap phones, to jam phones, whatever they need to do. And this just seems to be, uh, to me, another in uh, you know, a line of doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Now, Brad, there's another little interesting detail here. Wasn't the original uh, complaint about jammed phone lines related to the senator's office in Baton Rouge, not New Orleans? Yeah, there is some confusion about that. That's another issue, and I think that was one that Marcy Wheeler brought up, and I would uh, strongly recommend uh, Marcy Wheeler's uh, just destruction of O'Keefe's statement uh, that she ran over at Empty Wheel. Uh, She went through beat by beat and showed how uh, the statement just makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, there was complaints about it at one office, so they went in to manipulate the phones at another. The complaints took place two months ago, so they went in there to ask about them now. Uh, you know, and by ask about them, I put that in quotes because, you know, they were dressed like phone company employees and manipulating the actual phones. So we really don't know what happened. There is one question after another uh, that, that remains out there. And for me, one of the biggest ones, uh, Andrew Breitbart, uh, who released those Acorn tapes, as we discussed earlier, uh, admitted on the night that O'Keefe was arrested that O'Keefe is actually an employee of his, that mm-hmm. he pays him, quote, a fair salary. Now, the question must be asked, therefore, that if uh, all of these employees who work for ACORN, if they're guilty of something or another, and therefore ACORN is guilty of something or another because these employees uh, uh, who work for them did something wrong, isn't Andy Breitbart also guilty since one of his employees has now actually been accused of a federal felony? This is a, a... an extraordinary double standard, even for Andy Breitbart and Fox News. <laughs> and Andy, Andy seems to maintain uh, he has kind of two dismissals. One is that he didn't know about it, and the other is, well, these are just kids. These are just, well, actually, that's the, uh, the attorneys are claiming these are just kids. Mind okay. you, these kids are 25 years old, 24 years old. I don't know if kids is the, uh, is the right word for them. But there was... Uh, it's something else that he, he maintains, and let me see if I can pull up this quote here. Uh, while he was on the night of the arrest, he was brought onto Hugh Hewitt's radio show. And Hugh mm-hmm. Hewitt is another one of these uh, reprehensible wingnuts who's been uh, banging the phony acorn drum now for, for years, frankly. And his program is distributed by Salem, which is nominally a Christian radio network that uh, does a lot of right-wing uh, political coverage and advocacy. Right, exactly. And, uh, and that's exactly what he was doing. He was advocating at this point for Andy Breitbart, for O'Keefe, trying to save both of their asses. And Breitbart concurred with something that Hewitt said uh, after it had come out, uh, actually on Hewitt's show, that Breitbart had been paying O'Keefe a, a quote, fair salary. Hewitt said to, uh, to Breitbart, as a way to excuse Breitbart for, for O'Keefe you know, working for him, he said, uh, quote, Lots of people work for lots of corporations and do dumb and sometimes illegal things that are not within the scope of their employment, and this was not within the scope of his employment. 
Breitbart says, yes, absolutely, that is absolutely the case. <laughs> I believe you understand the irony there. Uh, I mean, yeah, you hire a provocateur and uh, you write a job description. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, it, and of course the description probably was you can do whatever you want, just don't get caught. Well, that's one. But let's make this matter even worse. Lots of people work for lots of corporations, do dumb and sometimes illegal things that are not within the scope of their employment. And yet these are the very same people who have said ACORN is a criminal organization because of a handful of employees who have done dumb and sometimes illegal things that are not within the scope of their employment. So, you know, it, it, it makes uh, ACORN a criminal organization, but in the case of Breitbart, where one of his employees have done a dumb and sometimes illegal thing. Oh, in that case, it's just uh, absolutely one of those cases where it's not within the scope of his employment, so Andy Breitbart should not be held accountable for what his employee did. Brad, you also linked to a piece that I read part of in the Sunday New York Times where they basically were minimizing this and uh, making it a curiosity, but... uh, uh, you know, it, it was not given serious coverage. It was uh, kind of a feature story where they rationalized in many respects what uh, O'Keefe and his cronies were doing. Yeah, it felt to me as I was reading it, this was in the Sunday New York, New York Times this week, and it was a 2,250-word uh, feature article on these guys. And the sense that I got was that they were really turning them into folk heroes. You know, as if they were out there fighting the good fight, uh, these rebels against the system. I mean, it really kissed up to them and to Breitbart, who have been accused of federal felonies here. I found it appalling. And uh, by way of contrast, by the time this podcast gets released, I'll I'll have it up on uh, bradblog.com, I hope, uh, an article that came out today from the investigative unit at Associated Press who, which really looked into the background of these tea buggers, and uh, of all four of them, and including a fifth one who seems to have been uh, uh, one of the benefactors here in this operation, a guy by the name of Ben Wetmore, who has since taken his website down entirely. Um, and it you know, looks into the background of who these people are, and, you know, exactly what kind of criminal operation we are likely looking at. It was a legitimate investigation. It was an excellent article. I highly recommend it. I'll be linking up to it at, uh, at Brad Blog shortly. But it, it provides a stark contrast when you look at the, uh, the New York Times blowjob, frankly, for these four guys. Uh, yeah, I, I, gave up, I gave up reading it. I lost interest because I just thought, wow, we're not, we're not digging for facts here. Right. We're looking for ways to, uh, you know, turn this into a little sideshow of amusement, but not one that has uh, significant implications. And as you've pointed out, Brad, in your piece, if the, the if this were the flip side, where Democratic operatives had stumbled into uh, uh, Richard Shelby's office uh, or, you know, some other very conservative Republican, uh, all hell would break loose. This would be a dominant story. And uh, the ripple effect to the Democrats would be significant, although a little unpredictable. They would be Andy Breitbart and his cronies at Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and everybody else would be asking over and over again, what did Obama, Pelosi, Reid, Acorn, SEIU, and Saul Alinsky know about it? And 
and, and when, when did they know about it? Yeah. I, I mean, that's what they would be asking. They would, de- you know, be demanding impeachment hearings for uh, Barack Obama. This would be round the clock. This would be a headline story to the exclusion of everything else, but such as the only difference was you had Republican operatives showing up to bug or to tamper with the phones of a U.S. Uh, Democratic senator. Uh, well, uh, you know, this is just the the liberal media going out of their way and, uh, you know, lying and doing whatever it is they do, and, and they're downplaying it everywhere they can. I mean, it's remarkable. I can't imagine four Democratic Party operatives directly connected to the Democratic Party trying to gain access to a U.S. senator, a Republican U.S. senator's office, and, you know, people pretty much just shuffling it off, as, as, as you're seeing today. And uh, I did click on some of the links that you embedded in the article, but I failed to uh, follow to uh, uh, Breitbart's Twitter comments. Yeah. And, and people can do that for themselves, and I'll ask you in a second if there's anything interesting there, but your money quote in this article is this one. Breitbart's recent Twittered attempts at spinning wingnut gold out of his employee's federally felonious straw comes in conjunction with his release on Friday of O'Keefe's uh, full first uh, first full statement. Uh, well, wordsmith, dude. Well, thank you, my friend. <laughs> I, were, were there anything? Were there any interesting comments in his tweets? Uh, no, just uh, you know lies and so forth. But what was interesting is the the tactics themselves. Both he and O'Keefe have now gone on the offensive, perhaps predictably so. They're now uh, attacking the media for covering this story. Hmm. I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, well, and doesn't O'Keefe say that when, when we see the video that the government has uh, taken into custody, that it'll all be explained? Yes. <laughs> this from the guy who refuses to release the full video from all of those acorn scams that he pulled. Yeah. But somehow he expects the government to release the video that he himself took. You know, so yeah, so he's he's going on the offensive. He's saying this is all the liberal media's fault. They're all misreporting the story, and it's outrageous. And I've got about uh, three or four different uh, tweets of Andy Breitbart's uh, 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 tweets here, where he says that uh, O'Keefe should be presumed uh, innocent until proven guilty. Now. I happen to agree with that. However, that is not the same standard that Breitbart and O'Keefe have applied uh, for years past against uh, folks involved with ACORN in any way, not to mention those uh, folks down there detained in Gitmo who, you know, they want them executed without a trial and, you know, without any evidence that they're guilty of anything. So, well, and, and Brad, your reporting is fair, it is sourced, it is credible. And I would contrast that with the way these uh, shows, particularly on Fox uh, with Greta Van Susteren and on Headline News with Nancy Grace, routinely uh, try and convict people in between commercials. Yeah. Well, they really do. And look, you you know, you want to bring uh, people on there to make the case that somebody broke one law or another, uh, fine. Andy Breitbart wants to post James O'Keefe's statement as uh, incredulous as it is. Fine. But, you know, how about bringing on uh, Marcy Wheeler from Empty Wheel to respond to it? Because she tears it apart with facts, legal facts. Uh, You know, have me on there to counterbalance these things. You know, you can go out there, you can take videotapes, 
perfect example, I think, is a short documentary film that we made back here in Los Angeles a few months ago where we went out and uh, interviewed these teabaggers who were in the park who were preparing for this big national tour, national teabagging tour. And... Yes, I use sharp language. Yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, very credulous about what it is that they're trying to say. But I tried to allow them to make their points. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to look uh, stupid, they could sink themselves. I didn't need to doctor the videotapes. I didn't need to insert stuff. I didn't need to overdub questions for these people so that they appeared to be answering something that they were not asked. That's exactly what James O'Keefe and Andy Breitbart did in their, in their videos. They doctored it. They created it. Whereas, if you look at my piece, if these teabaggers look bad, they have only themselves to blame. I went out of my way. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of stuff I did not use because the answers were so ridiculous and the conversations were so ridiculous, it looked as if, oh, I must have you know, purposely manipulated them or set them up. I tried to be fair to these people and let them sink themselves. So there is a place in the new media out there for for video, uh, for these sort of uh, video investigative reports, um, even if you come at it from a particular point of view. But be fair. You don't have to lie. You don't have to set people up. You don't have to do the kind of bullshit, and it is bullshit, that folks like James O'Keefe and Andy Breitbart have been doing. And, oh, by the way, that bullshit may also be illegal, as it's turned out that uh, a lot of these videotapes that they took were actually uh, taped illegally in a number of states. Yeah. Excellent job, Brad. Anything we uh, ought to cover before we wrap up here? Oh, I'm sure there's uh, more here than uh, than we've been able to get across, but I'll point folks to bradblog.com for more. I'll have more today, some uh, questions that Andy Breitbart needs to answer, and I just hope uh, that the media out there, I know you and I will do the, the job that needs to be done, but I hope that the rest of the media uh, you know, deals with this legitimately, and uh, it, it's a very troubling situation because I fear this is going to get a lot worse. These guys, James O'Keefe, Andy Breitbart, have become heroes to a lot of these wingnuts out there, and it is in large part because they only tell them one side of the story, even while they're out there telling them that they, unlike everyone else, is providing fair and balanced coverage. It is a hoax, and I you know, hope that people understand that, and I hope they pass on the word about this loud and clear everywhere they can, because I suspect the mainstream media is, once again, going to drop the ball, and the Democrats will... Uh, run into their foxholes just as soon as they can. Brad Friedman, bradblog.com, celebrating its sixth birthday. Happy birthday and happy trails, Brad. I'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails 